If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From Renaissance Florence and ancient Babylon to the Kingdom of Benin and Heian-era Kyoto, various cities across history have served as launchpads for extraordinary outbursts of artistic flowering. Caroline Campbell, director of the National Gallery of Ireland, has authored a new book exploring 15 such cultural metropolises. In today's episode, she guides Ellie Cawthorn through some of them, exploring what made them artistic hubs and how they turbocharged the history of art. Thank you so much for joining us from Dublin today, Caroline. We're going to talk about your new book, The Power of Art. In the book, you look at different cities through history which have had a particularly vibrant or productive art scene. To start us off, can you just give us a flavour of some of the different cities that you cover? Well, thanks, Ellie. It's so great to be here with you today from sunny Dublin, um, which incidentally is not one of the cities in the book, <laughs> though, though, it, though it could have been. It's a wonderful city. I wanted to write a book which would take us through some of the highs and the lows in various ways of artistic culture. These are artistic highs, but sometimes they happened in places which were in situations that m- weren't maybe totally brilliant. But I really wanted to demonstrate in this book the, the variety of human experience 
experience through the visual arts and also to put people back into art history. Because often it seems to me that art history is about ideas and that's wonderful. We all love ideas, but we also really love people. And my book wants to put the people and the places back into those stories. And so I wrote a lot of this book during lockdown. So in some cases, I went to places where it's impossible to go. I can't go back to Baghdad in the 8th century. I can't go to Japan in the 10th century, nor can I go to Pyongyang in the 21st. But we can go to all of those places through the power of our minds and also through the power of art. There's a sense that art history is elitist, that art history is only for those people in the know. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is because art is actually around us everywhere. And we're all really good at assessing it and thinking about it. We just don't know we are because we encounter it in the streets. We walk down on the screens with which we occupy ourselves for a whole lot of our life. We are so good to analysing images and being visually literate. We just don't know we are. So I want to delve into some of those examples that you mentioned there, because there's some fascinating cities to explore. But before we do, what do you think is behind these cities becoming artistic hubs? Are there some magical components that make a city particularly fruitful artistically at a certain moment in time? Well, one of my thoughts is that cities per se are very fruitful places for art. It's not to say that art isn't made in all sorts of places. In fact, making art is one of the things that makes us human. But there's something very, very creative about cities. And creativity sometimes brings the negative as well. It brings competition, which can be wonderful in getting people to work more and to think through more their ideas and how they how they make. War can actually strangely be a huge initiative in creativity, in bringing ideas and objects forward. But then more simple things like peace can also be wonderful too. So it is really that variety of the human condition and the various ways in that's created art forms. So I wouldn't say that there's a single model. One thing I would say is that these cities at the moment, so I've chosen them, had a lot of money that was being invested in art forms. And I mean art forms in the broadest possible sense. I'm a curator and director of a museum of fine art. But here I've looked at ceramics, I've looked at buildings, I've looked at street furniture, and I'm seeing that as the wider panoply of the artistic perspective very strongly in this book. So you say that the cities you examine, really, they do have a lot of wealth there at the time that there's this artistic flourishing. Is that connection simply because people were willing to buy art and that's why people therefore made it? Is it that simple? Not quite that simple, Ellie, because people have made art for so many different reasons. And one of the major reasons that people make art is for connection to religious or devotional practices. And sometimes that can happen without very much money sp- spent on them at all. And one of the most extraordinary and enduring of art forms, it's one of the things that you find in the earliest archaeological records and digs are ceramics. People have been making pots since there have been people almost. And that's because they are needed for the basic necessities of life, for eating, for serving your food, for containing your water and other things. So art is not simply connected to money, but money and stability has often been a huge um, force behind its production and making. 
So I wonder now if we could delve into some of those cities in a bit more depth. So the first city that you look at is ancient Babylon. You've got a fairly long time span here. (laughs) I have. Which is fair enough. But tell us about what was going on there and some of the artworks that Babylon produced. I mean, Babylon is one of many cities that grew up in the Near East about several thousand years ago, thousands of years before the Common Era. And Babylon is one of the places where script was first developed. So I look at the various scripts and look at them as art objects in their own right. Also temples, buildings which are destroyed and one structure which is really important in my book and something made a huge impression on me when I first saw it um, in my early 20s in Berlin is the Pergamon Gate which is a reconstruction of a gate which was excavated by the great archaeologist Robert Coldaway and his team in the early 20th century. And the Pergamon Gate is a astonishing because even though it's a 1930s reconstruction, it's full of colour. I think one of the things that has most struck me about the ancient world, because so much of the colour is lost, is how much colour there was there. This is blue. This is turquoise. It shines, it shimmers. It's absolutely astonishing. Um, we often think, looking at the past, that the past happened in black and white. But of course, that's not the case at all. And that object, to me, really demonstrates that. It also shows objects which are a combination of wonderful and terrifying. Um, strange creatures with like an auroch, which looks like a bull, but has incredible horns and is complicated. Um, and huge lions, which also processed along the processional way that this was at the heart of. Of course, we can't populate Babylon anymore, but you do get a sense of it from the colour of this and also from the many inscriptions that the rulers of the city and others placed in the fabric of the the structures. Cyrus the Great, who conquered Babylon, puts his name literally everywhere in the city, in the walls he makes, in the bricks he creates. I mean, that sense of egotism and personality is also palpable. And no general global history of art would be complete without a visit to Rome. There are many different eras that you could have chosen for Rome, and you've chosen the first century CE or AD. Why? Well, I mean, a lot of the choices for what I've made in the book are things that particularly excite me personally. And I grew to love the art and literature of ancient Rome as an A-level student in Belfast in the early 1990s. And reading the poetry of Catullus, the epigrams of Martial, the Aeneid of Virgil, and the scurrilous writings of Ovid, I was so intrigued by this society. And visiting Rome and seeing the legacy of Rome everywhere in the place we live and work has made that moment of Roman history, and there are so many, as you say, particularly vital and vibrant to me. I think also it's a moment when Rome is really discovering itself. This is the moment when Rome classically is moving um, from the Republican organisations that it's had allegedly for eight centuries before to an imperial form of government. And you see such sense of the personalities in the arts that produced. Art is made often as a form of propaganda in Rome too. And Augustus, of course, apart from being the first Roman emperor, is also an extraordinary propagandist. And the Arapachus, the art of peace, which is part of a huge complex, which is now basically hidden under the modern city of Rome, is really demonstrating the Augustan regime. It shows these people walking to the sacrifice that we, in, that's depicted on the altar that's, that's there. And you see members of the imperial family. You don't just see, of course, 
the emperor himself and his friends. You see children, you see women. I was very interested by the humanity of that uh, as well too. And I suppose the other reason why I chose Rome at this moment is that as someone who spent a lot of their life um, in Great Britain, between Great Britain and Ireland, we've all got so used to seeing remnants of Rome in the cities, in towns, in the landscapes we inhabit. It's always so striking if you go somewhere like the middle of Cumbria and suddenly you find a Roman wall or you go along a country road which becomes straight and you see there was the legacy of Rome. So I was really interested in looking at that moment in this chapter. So staying in Italy for a moment, let's move on then to Renaissance Florence. Renaissance Florence has a reputation worldwide for being a moment of flowering of culture and the arts. Do you think that it deserves that reputation? I'm guessing because you included it, you would say yes. Well, I'm somebody who spent most of her professional life studying the art history of the Renaissance. Renaissance Florence is my specialist subject, as it were. Um, so yes, I do. Of course, there were many other places where that flowering happened. And the, the fact that we still use the word Renaissance or rebirth um, for many artistic changes is synonymous of the impact that Renaissance Florence had. What I find really interesting about Florence and I wanted to look at in this book was the fact that competition was absolutely central to how art developed in that city. Also, its political system. Florence was ostensibly a republic, but it was run by a number of powerful families, most important of which were the Medici family. Other people didn't have such access to power, and they seem to have used art as a way of expressing their ideas and having their agendas somewhere in the city. If you look at Florence, there was an explosion in palace building in the 15th century, now, that was important, not just for the architecture. And indeed, if you walk around the city, you get a sense of the different families from the Medici Palace, um, just a little bit away from the Duomo, to the Strozzi Palace, their main enemies, about 10 minutes walk away. But if you had a palace, you also needed art to be able to put in it. And many of the greatest works of Western art, some of them were made for Florentine palaces in the 15th century. Botticelli's Primavera, a painting that's hung in the Uffizi Gallery for a long long time. It was a painting that was made to go above a bed in a Medici family palace. So I think also what's interesting here is that you get the combination of the domestic and also the more external focus of power and diplomacy in objects such as that. And Florentine art just continues to totally fascinate me, as many other people too as well. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I think Florence is a really interesting case study, isn't it? Because as you say, it's about economics, it's about power and competition. But also at the beginning of the book, you have something created by Michelangelo. But it's not the Sistine Chapel. It's actually a shopping list. Yes. And I wonder if this touches on on the role of individuals in the history of art, which is something you mentioned earlier. How important is it that there are certain moments in history where very talented individuals come together in certain cities? I think that has an enormous impact because art history, in the way that it's often popularly talked about, is a series of movements or a series of isms. So you move rather seamlessly in the art history that my children have been taught at school, for instance, from the medieval period to the Renaissance, to the Baroque, to the 19th century, to Impressionism. And it all seems very, very organized. It's like, gosh, somebody above some, some deity has thought of this structure. But life and art aren't quite like that. They're messy. Individuals matter. They make a huge difference. And individuals in the work they do are not just motivated by their grand ideas, though of course they are, but also by things that niggle them and annoy them and are part of their ordinary life. And that's why I wanted to start with Michelangelo's shopping list. Michelangelo is, I mean, if you believe in the concept of genius, and although it's an unfashionable one, I still do, I think he undoubtedly was one. He made exceptional works of art that take us with them to the the highs and the lows really of human existence. If you look at those extraordinary um, scenes on the Sistine Chapel, or if you look at those tortured slaves he spent years working on for a tomb that was never actually made, you know, you, you are taken to another world. But at the same time, he was worrying about his shopping. Michelangelo's correspondence is huge. And most of it is about moanings about his patrons, about his families, about why he was having to pay for this, how cross he was. And you really, I think you were appreciate his art more from an understanding of that too. Um, So let's move across the globe now to Benin, which you look at between 1500 and 1700. Many people listening might have heard of the Benin bronzes, but they might not be too familiar with the art of this kingdom beyond that. Can you tell us a bit about some of the artistic traditions that were there at this time? Well, apart from the famous metalwork, which is truly extraordinary and indeed a rather contemptuous critic of the early 20th century, a specialist in Renaissance bronzes, no less, looked at the casting for this and said he couldn't have believed it would have been made in this place because it's of a technological sophistication, which is absolutely exceptional. But similarly, Benin was a very, very rich state and I've 
ivory was one of the other materials which the artists of Benin really mastered. This was made for the royal palaces, for the royal family, for the Oba and for the Queen Mother, who was a very important figure in the organisation of the palaces and of the state, and also for outsiders. Benin was a rich country, it was a powerful country, and many other people wanted to come and trade with them. And in the objects that were made for these people to take back to their home, you see pictures of them which are not entirely positive. One object I talk about in the book is a salt cellar, now in the British Museum, which was made for a Portuguese trader. The Portuguese did a lot of business with the King of Benin. And it shows these Europeans with hideously pointed beards, horrible, avaricious, mean-looking faces. And yet this was intended to go back and sit on their tables um, on occasions when they were showing off. In medieval and Renaissance Europe, a salt cellar was a really important object. And we still use the phrase below or above the salt when we're talking about how somebody might, what somebody's prestige or status might be in a society. So that that is an incredible object in its own right. But perhaps the most wonderful of these ivory objects were a series of masks that were made, which seemed to depict the Queen Mother or the Ioba. And the Queen Mother was a was was not just the mother of the king. She also had a role that was important in the governance of the state of Benin. And these images, which seem to have been made to sit on the belt, perhaps of her son, um, when he was in it for ceremonial activities, show her with incredible hair, with locks of hair that when you look at them carefully, you see they include figures of these same Portuguese and European travellers who were visiting. I guess there's another part of this story when it comes to Benin, isn't there, in, in terms of what happened to the objects after they were created? Yes. I mean, the story of Benin is one of the most tragic and terrible. This was an exceptional place. It was a rich city, a rich country with a civilization of incredible depth. The religions of Benin are very, very complex and, and, and wonderful as well. There were huge walls around the city. There were whole quarters where these various artists worked, one for the metal workers, one for those working in ivory. It was a very ordered society, one which, again, you European visitors visiting in the 16th and 17th century marvelled at and said they didn't see anything like this, for instance, in Antwerp, in Amsterdam, or in other cities which were prosperous in Europe at that time. But in 1897, Benin was utterly destroyed by a punitive expedition. And the objects in Benin, as a result, are in many places throughout the world, not very many of them in Benin itself. And these objects are incredible testimonies of the richness, the value of this civilization, but they also are religious artifacts in their own right. Um, and there is an issue, of course, in their placement in museums. They're not being used um, in the context in which they were intended. But, you know, much, much is being done to be able to share these objects properly, which I think is, is very, very, very important. They are, for me, some of the most extraordinary objects made um, in the world in the 15th and 16th centuries. They are utterly compelling. And of course, their future is still under debate, so we'll see what happens there. But moving across to India, the next art hub I wanted to ask you about was Delhi between 1670 and 1730. Your chapter on this is subtitled Envy. Why did you call it that? I called it Envy because Mughal India, of which Delhi was the capital, was 
unbelievably rich. The tax revenues that came in for the Mughal emperors were the absolute envy of every other ruler in the world at this time. And as a result, many other countries were trying to get into the wealth that was there. So the story of India, of course, in the 18th and 19th centuries and the 17th century as well is very complex. But people from mainly from Europe were trying to create um, dialogue and also connections with the Mughal emperors. And of course, the Mughal empire does finally ultimately collapse in the 19th century. Um, but really, it's a, it's a sort of finished force um, from the mid 18th century onwards. I start my chapter with a, a, a wonderfully strange object, which is not in India, but which was made for Augustus Strong, the ruler of Dresden today in eastern Germany and of Poland. And it shows the birthday celebrations of one of the Mughal emperors. And it's an, an object crafted out of about over a hundred little figures, all made out of gold, silver and jewels. But the resources that Augustus the Strong had at his disposal, and this was a very expensive object, were far less than the Mughal emperors themselves had to be able to play with at a court where precious jewels were, were essentially for the very rich, elements even of child's play. So let's move back across the oceans now to a city that didn't really enjoy royal patronage, New York, 1920 to 1970. Tell us about what was going on in those 50 years. New York is such an extraordinary place. The sense of vibrancy, of activity when you go there today, of things concentrated in a small space is very, very palpable to anyone who visits. And in the 20th century, there is this huge anomaly. New York is not the capital of America. It is the city that everyone identifies with it. And but it's a very countercultural city in many ways. And there, a number of artists developed ways of working, which had enormous impact across the globe and which, in which in indeed still do. And abstract expressionism, which really became, I suppose, the international art style of the 1960s and 70s, where you, you use shapes really to create a sense of emotion and feeling. That was created by artists who were not trying to do anything imperial. They were really just trying to find themselves, I think, in different ways in New York in the 1940s and 50s. But of course, New York is a city of great complexity, like any city. And in my chapter in New York, I wanted to talk about people who at the time they were making were not so valued. And I've, I mentioned two particularly, the sculptor Louise Bourgeois, who is now incredibly well known, but during her lifetime, for a lot of her lifetime, was probably better known for being the wife of a rather famous art historian. And um, Jacob Lawrence, an incredible creator, um, whose migration series, when I first saw it in, in New York and in Washington about 20 years ago, made an enormous impression on me, a black American artist who really creates this wonderful narrative history of the Great Migration when Black Americans left the South and travelled North because of economic difficulty, but mainly because of persecution. And staying in the 20th century, we're going to flip back across the globe to a city that I think many listeners in the West might not expect to see on this list, which is Pyongyang in North Korea in the second half of the 20th century. Can you tell us about the choice to include that? Well, I wanted to include Pyongyang because Pyongyang and North Korea are places that many of us in the West have heard of, but we have not been to. And yet it's a totalitarian state. It's a state which is doing, has done really 
appalling things to its people. But the architecture of Pyongyang is absolutely, totally fascinating. The idea of the state has really been created in this city, and that has changed also over the course of the late 20th and early 21st century, depending on the personalities of the rulers. Um, so Pyongyang is a very ancient city. It was almost completely destroyed during the Korean War in the 1950s. And that, of course, gave the city's new rulers the opportunity for carte blanche to create a totally planned city rather than one which is a mixture of different periods. So Pyongyang really expresses the ideals of the North Korean ruling party and also of the rulers themselves. There's nowhere else where size seems to matter more. You see a triumphal arch of which its most important feature is that it's taller than any other and a little bit bigger than that in Paris. But you also see buildings of extraordinary pastel colours which have a sense of fun, um, of whimsy, which is certainly not what you would expect in a state like that. And I wanted to look at Pyongyang because as somebody who grew up reading George Orwell in 1984, we all thought in the early 1990s that we were crossing the corner, that suddenly there was going to be a bright future ahead. There would be no dictatorships, there would be no totalitarianism, everything was going to be good. That was obviously a supremely naive picture. But Pyongyang as a totalitarian city, as a totalitarian state, is there as an example of the things that are very problematic about the human condition. And I guess it demonstrates, doesn't it, these diverse situations in which a city can become an art hub. So we've mentioned a few of the cities from your book, but there are many more. Are there any that we haven't mentioned you'd like to give a shout out to to finish us up with? Well, I do think that Kyoto in Japan, though as it is today, it's completely different to the way it was in the period I write about, which is the Heian period. Um, so at the time when, as I say, King Knut is trying to stop the tide pack, um, allegedly in England, these works of incredible sophistication in artistic sense and also in literary sense are being produced in another island, um, archipelago on the other side of the world. I think uh, one can get a great sense of Heian Japan from the literary survivals as well as the art. And I'd really encourage readers of the book to go on and read The Tale of Genji if they haven't read it, or The Pillow Book, this exceptional series of lists which says, lists written by a court lady of what she liked and didn't like. They include things like dew on chrysanthemums, something we could all identify with, to um, the, the sound of her lover's hat as it bangs as it goes out of her little sort of bedroom. High-end Japan, if you were wealthy, it was one of the best places ever to live. I think, particularly if you were male. But people, even the wealthy, lived in these tiny houses, these houses which were created out of wood, because of course Japan is a, is very prone to earthquakes. And people were very cold. They often talk about their red noses. But yet they're wearing clothing that is going into maybe eight or ten different layers. So I love the combination of the sort of banality and the sophistication of that period. Um, so I'd really um, encourage readers to find out more about that. And finally, Caroline, if you could hop in a time machine and go back to be a fly <laughs> on the wall in one of these cities throughout time, which do you think you'd pick? 
Well, I think I have given it away because I think I would pick Kyoto in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. But there's a caveat there. I would have to be male. I would have to be above the sixth rank in court status. And I would probably have to be healthy as well, too, because they were very prone to disease because they lived in these very sort of crowded and very drafty places. But to live in a civilization where you succeed in life because you write good poetry, you appreciate and possibly make good paintings, painting and where you might spend four hours dressing yourself every day. I have to say there are some things which are quite appealing about that, particularly as doing that was going to get you towards your goal of nirvana and eternal peace. That was Caroline Campbell. Caroline is director of the National Gallery of Ireland and the author of The Power of Art, A World History in 15 Cities, which is on sale now, published by Bridge Street Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.